if we understand that colonial economic, political, and religious power are imposed through domination uh, and extracted from the natural world in an act of total desecration, then we can view the task of anti-colonial struggle as an abolitionist, liberatory degeneration and destruction of that order. Uh, the task of decolonization then would be to assert a radical reconnection and an assertion of interrelational autonomous mutualities. Um, so the idea is basically to destroy power over and restore power with all of creation. On this episode of Burn the Wagon, Klee Benali comes on to speak about the importance of protecting our unhoused community, what decolonize means to him, and how that plays into the creation of the board game Burn the Fort. Uh, someone sent me your page a while back, and I've been meaning to reach out, but just so much going on, and just like the name of your of your board game, and we're going to talk about it a little bit, but... Um, it is so much of a connection, burn the fort, burn the wagon. So yeah, I had to reach out eventually, but welcome to another episode of Burn the Wagon, where the wagon is a symbol for capitalism, patriarchy, and colonialism, and us having these conversations and burning those things down. So I appreciate you joining me. So what I'm going to do first is let you yourself give yourself a little intro in like where you're from, what reservation you, you grew up on, what tribe or tribes you're from, and we'll go from there. Oh. So my name is Klee Benali, and on my father's side, I'm Todich Eatney, or Bitterwater, and my mother's side, I'm Russian-Polish, and... I am originally from uh, an area known as Black Mesa or Jifujin on the Dinepikea or the Navajo Nation. And currently I reside in the occupied area known as Flagstaff or Kinflene, which is at the base of one of our holy uh, sacred mountains for Dine people, one of the four cardinal mountains that represent the pillars that uphold our universe in our cosmology. Wow, that's amazing. And how long have you lived at, in that area for? Um, well, I was born in the IHS Indian Health Service Clinic in Tuba City, and uh, my family lived off and on the res, uh, but my dad always called it an open-air prison camp because Dinepikeya uh, means where we walk around as Dene people. And so since creation... Uh, we, since time immemorial, we have these uh, four or six sacred mountains, really, but four cardinal mountains that represent the sacred directions um, that are the boundaries for the area, our traditional homeland, that are traditional homelands. And so uh, all my life I've lived within the traditional boundaries. So then, you know, when we were kids, our, our parents didn't want to uh, put us into the um, the extensions of the boarding schools that were here. And so we went to school off the res, but 
uh, yeah, off and on the res pretty much all my life. And then mainly okay. here, I live in occupied Flagstaff for pretty much most of my life now. And you said you live at the bottom of, of what sacred mountain was it? Uh, Dakosli is the name in the Nepizad, uh, but the colonizers here call it the San Francisco Peaks after, I guess, the Spanish invaders came through in the 1600s and saw this sort of unique ecological island, the highest you know, mountain in Arizona, the highest ecological, or, uh, yeah, geological, ecological feature, and uh, called it after their St. Francis, which I guess is the patron saint of ecology. Uh, but it's a mountain that's held holy by more than 13 indigenous nations. And we've been fighting uh, to protect it because it's controlled and managed as so-called public lands by the United States Forest Service. And for more than uh, 40 years now, we've been battling ski area ex develop development and expansion. Uh, this case has gone up to the Supreme Court twice and most controversially starting in the early 2000s, leading through uh, nearly a decade and a half of court battles. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been fighting the, the expansion of ski area because they proposed, because we live in a high desert, mm -hmm. when people think of Arizona, they don't think of skiing, they think of the Grand Canyon, they think of indigenous peoples, they think of you know the desert, cacti and so forth. And so the ski resort to sort of maintain and sustain its profits proposed to make snow. Uh, but there's no water here. There's no lakes, rivers, or streams, just uh, small springs in the area. And uh, sometimes we don't get a lot of rain depending on the seasons. So they proposed to make snow from this municipality, this occupying space of so-called Flagstaff, uh, by pumping 180 million gallons of treated sewage from the city of Flagstaff through a 14.8 mile pipeline up the mountain to make snow. And so the fact that we even had to fight them to argue that that's a violation of our ways of being cultural survival and just basic common sense, not to you know spray this waste all over an ecologically sensitive area and subjects, you know, people who would even recreate it as like test subjects. Um, but yeah, considering uh, that there's no justice on stolen land, we lost uh, that case and we've been fighting it, like, you know, wage, waging it at administrative levels, waging it in the courts, and also waging direct actions. And so the struggle continues too, because the ski area still wants to do more expansions. Is there any petitions or anything that people can sign that, are, that could go towards this? Yeah, I'm part of a, a loose knit organization it's more of a banner called that calls itself protect the peaks and you can check out our website protectthepeaks.org uh but i mean the the petitions are useless you know we we have exhausted every means essentially begging politicians to see that we have we should have the guaranteed religious freedom that the their own constitution uh, says that it's founded upon as indigenous people, we still don't have that. You know, I mean, our, our ceremonies, our spirituality was outlawed until 1978 and the uh, American Indian Religious Freedom Act was passed. And, and the case to protect the San Francisco Peaks actually was one of the first legal battles uh, in a case called Wilson versus Block. And it demonstrated that that law failed. It, it 
really offered no meaningful protection for indigenous people in subsequent court cases, as we have seen <laughs> from Standing Rock and Lake Oahe to Mount Graham to, uh, you know, hundreds of other sacred places that, you know, the colonial laws are set up not for indigenous interests, but colonial profits or capitalist profits. And this is really, the, the fight is everywhere. So instead of signing petitions, I urge people to understand the threats against sacred lands where they are and engage in those struggles to defend them. Does this have, because I'm seeing a big wave in a lot of people, like there's certain social media influencers that are giving directions to certain sacred uh, hiking sites. I don't know if this is in Arizona, but this is happening a lot. And then those sacred sites are being um, like, people are going there and trashing them and then like pushing over rock structures and stuff. Is this part of that or is that a complete difference? Yeah, I, I seen the. I think the post initially was put out by Last Real Indians yeah. about uh, this place in so-called Sedona, which is actually just about an hour or so south of uh, occupied Flagstaff, mm -hmm. and it's an it's a new age center with all these tourist features, but it's the occupied uh, Yavapai Apache lands, you know, and it's a cultural um, uh, area of many nations that have been shared, um, but. This is ongoing. I mean, you know, part of the reason that the protection of barriers was necessary is because people were going out with guns and shooting up petroglyphs and doing the same thing, grave robbing. You know, this is why laws like NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act, were necessary, but they also still don't do anything because there's an incentive to rob indigenous people of our uh, connection to the land and rob our ancestors. Um, you know, the whole project of, of America is one big wave of desecration, you know, and tourism and conservation and the maintenance of public lands is part of that, you know, this, this false concept of a separate, you know, social space as the wild, as, you know, has meant that settlers have just cleared out indigenous people from national parks like Yellowstone, you know, or the Grand Canyon. I mean, the Grand Canyon was established um, as a forced removal project of the Havasupai people, you know, so so the, these acts of desecration are ongoing in many ways. But yes, what is happening in Sedona is nothing new. It's these, um, you know, the, the sort of tourist influencer settlers who want to go out and have a, a photo op and re- sort of organize the landscape. Well, that's happening on many different levels and many different scales, whether it's a pipeline, a ski resort, a gold mine, a coal mine, a lithium mine, um, and sort of resource extractive idea and commodification of nature. So somebody can what make a profit off of the social or the, the attention economy and social media. So yeah, this is, this is an ongoing part of the landscape here is a history and ongoing force of desecration. I recently went to Yosemite, and I feel like the same thing with the people up there. They're, they have their, their, we call it a roundhouse out here. They're like the traditional place, but they, they kept that intact. But it still feels just like weird. All these settlers, all these like tourists coming from around the world, coming and being able to be around this roundhouse, which is supposed to be like a ceremonial place. But, but I don't know. They, they The people there might have an agreement with the, with the national park. I don't know. But like. It just seems weird to me, like people being pushed out of, like you're saying, people just straight up being pushed out of, of this beautiful place. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. The, the history of environmentalism and conservation has been largely a white supremacist colonial project. I mean, the Sierra Club started as essentially 
a very racist organization with John Muir. I, I mean, it's no, it's no hidden history, yeah. um, you know, to create these, you know, environments or ecological spaces, but also view indigenous people as being in the way and a threat, you know, to those spaces. So um, there's, it's a, it's a pretty well-documented history of this sort of idea of the, the threat of conservation, ecological, or the colonial, you know, aspects of, uh, colonial and ecological sort of uh, environmental projects. Just think how insane like the government and people would be going if these sacred mountains was a church and people were trying to do something to that church. They would stop whatever is going on to that church immediately and they would not let anybody touch it. So like I don't see why they can't apply that to actual mother nature That's that was just made, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a the question of values and um, Western chauvinism. Yeah. I mean, when the Notre Dame was burning, tears flowed and money flowed and support flowed, and it was such a crisis. But we've had uh, hundreds of Notre Dames desecrated um, and destroyed in the name of quote unquote progress here yeah. for economic development or resource extraction. I mean, the fact that. People have to put their lives on the lines to stop a pipeline from going through our communities so we can protect a sacred site, protect the ancestors to make sure that they're resting, and protect our health and environment for future yeah. generations. We have to justify that. I mean, in, in the, um, and I've written a lot about this uh, because I was on the front lines in our, and I still am in the struggle to protect the San Francisco peaks here. But in the opening arguments for many of these cases in the court battles, you know, there's a very clear hypocrisy and contradiction in terms of viewing indigenous uh, ways of life as illegitimate compared to uh, the Western Christian sort of nationalist attitudes that have been inherent. You know, a lot of people say, oh, we're in this cultural war and there's this, you know, Christian nationalism, Christian authoritarian nationalism that's like, you know, this huge wave that's rising up and sort of coming out of nowhere. No, that's always been the premise of the uh, settler colonial project of the U.S. I could talk about this all the time. I mean, I have a lot of different citations, you know, of the experiences that we've had in this sacred sites battle, particularly over the San Francisco peaks of government agencies in court saying that, you know, they couldn't, if the judge ruled against them in this case, it would open up millions of acres of public lands for protection from indigenous people because millions of acres of public lands are held sacred. And we were like, well, what's the problem with that? You're acknowledging that there is an issue here that needs to be resolved and brought into an alignment if you say you value religious freedom, but it's only religious freedom for some, particularly not indigenous people. Moving on, I want to move on to, to this is a, like, because it hasn't come out yet, your board game, uh, Burn the Fort. And I just want to go through the, the whole process of, you know, what made you want to start a board game? You know, I've never seen an indigenous-based board game in my in my life. So, like, that also bring it's able to bring people back together to to a dinner table to to the family time. So it's like I think that's very important as well. Yeah, well, I'm not the first indigenous like board game designer to just be clear, and I want to just send out huge props and acknowledgement to Connor with Coyote and Crow who developed an awesome RPG, a role-playing game uh, that is sort of like Dungeons and Dragons, but imagine it's set in a future that colonial invasion of the so-called Americas didn't happen. So check that out. And he's also developing a new game called Wolves. Uh, But there have been many like 
small board games or reinterpretation of different um, board games uh, that are out there. Where this idea came from for Burn the Fort, I was hanging out with some radical friends and we were looking for, you know, something to do that uh, was just, you know, like maybe let's play some games. And they were like, hey, we have Settlers of Catan, but... And then it's like, oh, we have this other game, but... So it was like, here's, here's a game that's premised... Literally, the theme of Settlers of Catan is colonial invasion and resource extraction. And here's another game. Oh, wait, that's a capitalist sort of like model uh, theme. And so it was like looking at all of these different board game offerings and all the themes just reinforce this narrative of colonial invasion or resource extraction and commodification through capitalism or colonialism. I was like, okay, I need to do something different. And so I, you know, from that, that was like about a little over six years ago. And uh, yeah, so I was like, I want to try to develop a game. And I didn't really, I had reference points because I grew up playing games, not just you know, like Risk or Monopoly and all these other, like, you know, Scrabble, those kinds of family tabletop games, which are, you know, always sort of fun. And for me, I, I, I was born in 1975, to give you a reference point. So I grew up in a time very much where, like, in some ways, board games were, you know, part of, you know, a sort of pedagogical process. But, uh, you know, we also have our traditional games as the net people. Um, we have Case which is a shoe game. And that game is actually rooted in our creation account. And part of the reason that uh, we live um, in a sort of uh, balance of day and night. And so in our history, it's it's actually a, a bit of a ceremony, but it, in the winter it's played today. And I grew up playing it and um, I, I can, you know, sort of, uh, I, I know the game enough that I, I, I sort of lead sessions of Case J. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I've always loved that element because it, it is, there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of gambling. There's different interesting mechanisms. And uh, I also grew up playing another game called uh, Tzidish, which is um, a very simple game. And it's the closest thing I could say to like a board game where you have um, a series of 40 stones and a central rock. And you have these um, three dice that are uh, uh, three stick dice. One side is painted um, black. And the other side is painted white and you drop them and then they're basically dice. You know, you have counters depending on how many sides are black and white. And so um, when I was developing this game, I knew I wanted to do something that just celebrated indigenous resistance. Uh, I knew I wanted to just, you know, create a celebration of indigenous resistance, but also create a tension within the mechanics of the game as well. And so I adopted the use of those stick dice from Tidith. And then I sort of set them thematically against what we call the colonizer dice, which is, you know, two six-sided dice. Um, so, yeah, it was more or less something that I wanted to have is, you know, like what you said, something in front of like a family or your friends can share without uh, mediation of a digital device. It's very much an analog and tactile sort of experience because I, I really like board games. I like contemporary games. And today there are actually many more. Uh, when I started developing this game, there are very, very few sort of what you'd consider radical or political games. I mean, there was a handful. I mean, arguably Monopoly started as an anti-capitalist game, the original designer. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, she created it uh, to um, as part of an intervention to educate people about how monopolies are bad. Um, but it was just uh -huh. sort of... And, and now I think it's Hasbro, whoever owns um, the IP 
for it has sort of twisted it and people just, you know, play it with a depoliticized version of it. But it actually was supposed to show the the threats and dangers of capitalism historically. I mean, that makes sense. Like, because people go crazy sometimes in that moment when they get that money. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I played sessions of Monopoly. No matter how you theme it or skin it, because they have all these different versions. Like, I've, I've there's a there's a Danette version, uh, a, a Navajo skinned version of Monopoly that some people have made. And no matter how you play it, yeah, actually, it can ruin friendships <laughs> or create bitter, bitter feelings. But yeah, I mean, today there are an array of of different board games. One of them, Spirit Island, for example, is designed as an anti-colonial game where you're 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 the spirits of an island that's being invaded by colonizers and you have to fight them off and sort of put fear into them, which is cool. And there's um there's another game called Tendaya. There's a, a game called Freedom that celebrates the Underground Railroad. Um, there's a there's a couple of board game companies specifically like the Tessa Collective that design like anti-fascist games, mm-hmm. um, uh, cooperative games, uh, just sort of like more games that are aligned with the political left um, for you know popular education. And who was that? Was what was that first game that you said the RPG game? Oh, uh, Coyote and Crow, designed by okay. Connor. It's a yeah, it's great. Uh, we I have wanna, a copy. I want to look that up. Yeah, highly recommend. And check out, he just uh, had a successful uh, Kickstarter campaign for Wolves, his new game that's coming out. That's also going to be a cooperative game. It's a strong indigenous uh, thematic uh, experience as well. So, And is uh, the Burn the Fort, is that anywhere people can order or has that hit the shelves yet? Uh, we just ended our uh, crowdfunding campaign on GameFound um, uh, and it's being manufactured right now. Um, so this is the uh, the box for the board game, and um, uh, it's in the process of being manufactured. I just got an update from the manufacturer, and they just uh, said that they're starting assembly this week, and they'll be shipping them the following week. Um, so we don't have these yet, except this is like a mass production sample, um, uh-huh. and so... Uh, it will be so it was available as like a sort of pre-order thing with the crowdfunding campaign but that that campaign is over um and we will make it available on the website burnthefort.com and we've been uh, you know this has been completely like word of mouth i haven't done any like paid advertisement or anything like that people in the board game community and uh, many indigenous like educators and sort of radical groups have reached out saying they'd like to distribute it, like a lot of uh, info shops, autonomous centers. So we're, go- we're trying to make it as accessible as possible. Like we're working with a, um, a retail indigenous retailer that's a board game store in so-called Canada, uh, which is really cool, too. So um, and Coyote and Crow sort of hooked us up with that connection as well. So there's this whole um, small community of um you know, with sort of a you know indigenous community within the board gaming community, um, that's really supportive and has been really an awesome force. So yeah, but the, just to be clear, the board game will be. We don't have a retail date yet, but it most likely will be sometime in mid-November. Um, so we'll throw up probably before then a pre-order form on our website, burnthefort.com. Uh, but you can also if if you're um, we've also made this uh, available for free for indigenous, radical indigenous groups, autonomous spaces, um, and educators. So we, this is first and foremost a teaching tool. It's a, it's a lot of deep history. I spent 
um, a better part of the process of designing this game as an educational sort of anti-colonial intervention. So we have facts like on all, almost all the cards. Um, I've done a lot of just deep research in terms of this the the time frame of the game because the game is set during the so-called Indian Wars uh -huh. uh, from like the late six or around the 1600s up until some people say the 18 or early 1900s but honestly the Indian Wars never stopped um, but that's a well documented time in history and usually it's portrayed and and this is like true for like even the board games it's like indigenous people if they're part of like some thematic board game. Um, usually we're like a threat, right, to settlers, yeah. uh, innocent settlers who are, you know, just trying to make their way or we're like, we're like a prop, you know, it's like, hey, let's make friends with the natives. So then that's how we achieve our objectives or we're victims, right? Um, so I wanted to make this like, no, these, these are warriors that we're celebrating, that like you get to play as one of six indigenous warriors and you get to stop these colonizers from bringing supplies to the fort and try to burn it to the ground before the train which represents the Trans-Pacific Railroad uh, or Transcontinental Railroad from reaching its destination, which is, you know, thematically part of that whole history. And so um, we actually have a variation in the game where uh, if you, because uh, there's a, it's a, it's a semi-cooperative game. So everybody can play together or you can sort of, you know, try to win on your own. Um, but the primary engineer um, mechanic that you're fighting against is this uh, deck of colonizer cards. And once those come up, they present different conditions that make your resistance harder or undermine your resistance uh, and uh, make it harder to achieve your goals. But uh, you, there's a variation for the game that if you pull up one of these cards, um, there's a trivia question. And uh, you can actually block um, that trivia question. Like, so if you, if you were at the active player and you drew it, and um, you had to like potentially play its consequence or effect, you could block that card by asking the trivia question to all the other players. If they get it right, then you block that card. So it's, it's deeply educational. So that's why we're making it freely available to uh, indigenous uh, educators, particularly in, in reservation communities is what we're prioritizing. And the form for that is actually now live on our website. So you can go to our website. It's a, a sub, um, I think a menu under store. Uh, and you can just fill out that form and request uh, a free copy of the game. But it, it won't be shipping until sometime in uh, late September or November. So when we're looking at getting all the I, crowdfunding fulfillment out. I definitely want to want to be able to get one. Um, I'm going to start working at uh, a nonprofit here that helps a lot of Native kids. So I'm definitely going to, going to want to get one of those. And it's a perfect match for Burn the Four, Burn the Wagon. You know what I mean? Like I said, it's, uh, somebody interviewed... Uh, like I said, a while back, send it to me. So like you said, it's all word of mouth. And that's how it's the amazing communities created. You know what I mean? Like, it's just word of mouth from like somebody that has the same views and wants the same things, just shares it with the same somebody they know. And then like, that's how we got connected. So like, it's amazing being able to do like word of mouth stuff like that. And uh, well, something I wanted to ask was, can you, do you have to have six players to play or does it, can you go with like three or, or whatever? Oh, it, it's actually uh, so we have six warrior cards like oh. that you can choose oh, okay. from to play with, but uh, the player count is two to four players. So okay. you can play up to up to four players. We didn't really test it at a, a a solo play count, but I think you can play this as a solo game. Um, but yeah, it's main. It's meant to be so social. You know, it's meant to be played with friends or family, and to have like you know, you know, be entertaining, but also be 
uh, an educational opportunity and something maybe cathartic too. You know, you could play this and just be like, yeah, we want to sort of smash on some colonizers <laughs> and burn their wagons while we do it. <laughs> and this is something I really want to hear your answer to. Um, and I know I, I, I skipped a question, but I really want to hear your answer to this uh, because I ask it. Uh, I like to ask everyone because everyone has a different answer. Um you know, in a different perspective, but uh, what does land back and what does decolonize mean to you? You can answer that in either either order you want, but what do those two things mean to you? Yeah, thanks for asking, because I don't think we are addressing that question enough uh, these days, especially because it seems like decolonization has just become a buzzword that yeah. people say over and over again until it doesn't really mean anything. Like, you know, there's a book out there called Decolonize Wealth, which essentially is a premise around decolonizing capitalism, which is really a bullshit narrative. Like I, I read the book and it's trash, in my opinion, um, because it's just trying to justify uh, settler inclusion of indigenous people towards yeah. a sort of type of success that is not rooted in our ancestral urges and ways of being that are in line with Mother Earth. But you know, to understand decolonization, I think first it's to define colonialism. And for me, um, I, I appreciate Patrick Wolf's uh, sort of clarification that colonization is a structure, not an event. But I think the indigenous urge should be to make colonialism an event, to end colonialism, right? Uh, so it is a structure that means it can be attacked and dismantled. So there are two branches of colonialism that I think are important to identify. And there are many different ways those branches of colonialism or categories affect uh, indigenous peoples and the land. The first one is settler colonialism. Um, and to me, that's a, and this is actually a definition. We, we put a glossary at the end of the, uh, the game guide in Burn the Fort, just to be clear on what we're talking about. Uh, and the definition that we have in this game guide is that uh, settler colonialism is a form of colonialism which seeks to violently displace and replace indigenous peoples with an invading society of occupying settlers. Uh, so, you know, you can you can apply that in Palestine, you can apply that in, you know, the continent of Africa and many different uh, diasporas that have been colonized for occupation specifically. And the second category is resource colonialism. Some people call it extraction colonialism. And the definition that we put in the game guide at the in the glossary at the end of it is um, it is an economic policy of violently conquering a land to exploit indigenous peoples non-human beings and the, the resources of the land. Uh, and so both of those forces usually are operating in tandem because, you know, they're typically waves of settler colonialism specifically for, in, you know, occupation, um, but they are also driven and maintained by the extraction of resources of that land. So you can have, of course, settler colonialism and resource colonialism operating together. And the definition that we put of decolonization in the game guide is um, a process in which indigenous people seek to become free of the oppressed oppressor regime, its ideas and its institutions imposed on them by a colonial power. And so to me, that's like the most succinct response, but it's obviously more complicated than that um, because, you know, we have different ways that decolonization has been addressed and people are even saying, you know, decolonize the academy or decolonize academia, you know, 
And to me, that's that's a it's a contradiction. It's a tension yeah. that actually doesn't apply. Um, I think we can try to indigenize, if you're familiar with that term, like or your audiences, like indigenize an academic space. But if it's a colonial construct, an institution that's designed to serve, you know, the the progress of colonial civilization, then we can't decolonize it because yeah. it, it exists in contrast or contradiction to our ways of being. Um, so to me, um, I think it's important to identify things like uh, the the particularly the fights in Africa that, against colonization, where like Franz Fanon and in, in Wretched of the Earth says decolonization is a program of complete disorder. And and what he means by that is it's a complete program of uh, disorder against the settler uh, uh, dominant social order um, or the invading dominant social order. Um, and so uh, I'm actually writing a book uh, right now and it's uh, we're editing it with the publisher. Uh, the title is No Spiritual Surrender. Mm -hmm. uh, and the subtitle is uh, Indigenous Anarchy in defense of the sacred, because I'm, I'm an indigenous anarchist, but, you know, I don't even, I don't like leftist politics. If you really press me, the only reason I use the term anarchist um, is just as a tension, <laughs> as, a, as a, to cut through the bullshit of having a discussion about liberalism and, you know, reform, um, because I think that anarchism, not the, the the European sort of like study and leftist politics, but the anti-politics of anarchism offer something interesting. And so that's the premise of, of my book is to explore um, the tensions, the ways that we can engage in an autonomous indigenous struggle to take down a colonial um, settler social order, dominant social order. And so I, I would offer, if you don't mind me going a little bit more into this sort of rant on decolonization. Go for it. Um, yeah, this is just like a little bit of like the highlights of some stuff that I, I put in the book, but I think it's important to identify a distinction between, for me, a distinction between decolonization and anti-colonial struggle is very important because decolonization has become a lifestyleist fad. Um, like people are saying, decolonize your diet. This is like, are, are, if we're talking about reconnecting to indigenous diets, the, you know, like it, it's a question of more or less like reconnecting with our ways of being and sort of try to, to separate out or make a distinction between what has created this 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 um, imposition or domination of our, our ways. And so um, what I write is um, while decolonization has now become merchandise in the personal lifestyle projects, anti-colonialism is negation of colonialism. It does not lend itself to a positive or progressive projects, no matter how much it's marketed. Uh, because if we can view decolonization as repairing or restoring and healing from colonial violence, then anti-colonial struggle is the intervening and destruction of that which makes it impossible for us to repair or restore those relationships. So if we understand that Colonial economic, political, and religious power are imposed through domination uh, and extracted from the natural world in an act of total desecration. Then we can view the task of anti-colonial struggle as an abolitionist, liberatory degeneration and destruction of that order. Uh, the task of decolonization then would be to assert a radical reconnection and an assertion of interrelational autonomous mutualities. Um, so the idea is basically to destroy power over 
and restore power with all of creation. And you said this is in a book that you're, you're writing now? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually already written. We're editing it. And uh, I'm not sure what when we're going to publish it. But um, yeah, I sort of just tackle it. And I've written with a project that I work with called Indigenous Action. Uh, the website's indigenousaction.org. You can also check it out on Instagram. Um, I've written a lot about these concepts, particularly like, you know, we're coming up on Indigenous Peoples Day. And uh, it's interesting because uh, a lot of states and municipalities capitulated to acknowledging to the point of like, you know, even the federal government acknowledging Indigenous Peoples Day. A lot of it seemed placating, right? Like, because when we were fighting for Indigenous Peoples Day, we were talking about colonization. And now people are celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day and they're doing like, these weird parties and treating it like a holiday. And, you know, it's like a, a quasi market and powwow uh, event with indigenous people dancing. And we've lost a lot of the language of colonial struggle. And so that's why I think there's a necessary opportunity to make a distinction or differentiation between anti-colonial struggle and decolonization, but acknowledge that they should be one in the same. They should be in tandem. You know, we, uh, they're not mutually exclusive. They have something out here in San Francisco at Alcatraz every year on Indigenous Peoples Day where they have they have that and it's uh they have a bunch of people come and dance and stuff. Um and, and it's kinda like it is a and they have speakers as well. It's like a celebration a, a little bit, like you're saying. Like I feel like weird celebrating that. Not weird, but now that you say that, it is a little bit of a weird weird feeling to celebrate that day. If that makes sense. Yeah, I I, well, I I helped to write a zine with some of my other collaborators and accomplices with Indigenous Action called um, Uprooting Colonialism Beyond uh-huh. Indigenous Peoples Day. And we critique the cele- this celebration and what is, you know, if, I don't know if you're familiar with Glenn Coltard. He's an Indigenous uh, academic out of so-called Canada, and he wrote a book called uh, Redskins White Masks, which is sort of based on um, France Fennin's White Skins Black Mask. But what he asserts is a, um, a distinction between the politics of recognition, which is uh-huh. like, you know, begging the, poli- the, the, the colonial political system to recognize our pain. And it's, a, it's sort of a politics of victimhood, if you will. Uh, and it's, it's sort of like, re, you know, circulating through the scenes of our suffering, which some people call history. And then he contrasts that to the assertion of the politics of liberation. You know, to me, it's like if decolonization and and celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day, one, if it's not an assertion of healing and reconnection, radical reconnection, um, uh, it should be, in one, I should say, uh, an assertion of radical reconnection and healing for Indigenous people to restore our relationships to the land and creation and with each other. Um, But it also should be a threat. Um, Decolonization should never be anything but a threat to uh, the dominant social order if we still live in a state of occupation that is still attacking every day our, our bodies as indigenous peoples, our minds, our hearts, and our lands. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of people who, you know, like last year there was an event in so-called Phoenix and Okamil Autumn and um, Pipash lands where it was sponsored by this massive capitalist nonprofit. And it was actually partially sponsored by a corporation that is notoriously um, perpetuating resource extraction here. And they had a VIP section that was like $2,500 a table for an Indigenous Peoples Day event. 
you know, it's so perpetuating this class warfare and violence against our own people. Like, I don't know anybody who can afford that shit. Um, having, having no speakers, like addressing colonial struggle and challenging the violences that we face every day. Like, I, I'm more concerned about the interests and the, 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 the needs and the survival of our uh, those who are, are mo- most destitute in our communities, like our unsheltered relatives, like what kind of economic violence, if you're going to be, be like taking money from a nonprofit organization in the name of Indigenous People Day, while our unsheltered relatives are locked out on the streets, suffering, trying to survive and dying uh, because they can't feed themselves that, you know, what kind of economic and colonial logic are you still benefiting and perpetuating and celebrating as Indigenous Peoples Day? So. You know, I'm I'm very antagonistic. You know, the, I mean, to put it this way, uh, Indigenous People is cel- Day is celebrated here in so-called Flagstaff. Uh, the city of Flagstaff, at the same time, maintains a contract to sell 180 million gallons of that sewage water to spray on the ski resorts. So they are complicit, and they are profiting off of the violation and and really cultural genocide. But at the same time, they're going to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. It's crazy. That shouldn't shouldn't be accepted. But we have our own people show up and they're they're there ready to drum. They're ready to there to, you know, put all their feathers on. And exactly. They're motivated. What are they motivated by? We should be holding these institutions accountable and saying no more. You know, like if we're talking about the basic sort of respect and understanding, we need to be also talking about um, accountability and responsibility and what that means to write the relationships and end the ongoing colonial systems of violence. So, you know, I, I've actually taken direct action and intervened in the Indigenous Peoples Day here because it's just uh, whitewashing or redwashing, if you will, too, uh, of ongoing colonial violence. Yeah. I like what you said uh, about the unhoused community because I, I, I helped that unhoused community out in Santa Cruz and man, like, how people treat and perceive the unhoused community is crazy. And they don't really, they don't even, they're not even out there asking people questions, like getting to know any of these people. They're just, they just see an unhoused person and they automatically categorize them as a drug addict or a criminal or whatever, you know what I mean? Not even knowing what stories, how these, some of these people ended up on the street. Some 30% of, of people on, on the street are employed. And they're just like you said, two thousand dollars a plate. That's for here in Santa and where I lived in in California. That's two months rent, or for some people, that's one month's rent. You know what I mean? So like, that's wild. To, to the the amount of money people spend on some of these things and don't think about that unhoused community is crazy. We should be any society should be judged on how unjustly it treats those most destitute and wretched, those who are in such a space that they have been forced to live on the streets and try to survive. And I've been, you know, I've been organizing for more than half my life. Um, And a lot of that, you know, in 2007, I helped to start a place called Tullahoan Info Shop here in Occupied Flagstaff. And um, we've always done mutual aid support for unsheltered community here, particularly in the winter, because it's, it's, it's warm, but we also get harsh winters. And every year, unsheltered people pass on because of exposure. Mm-hmm. And the, um, you know, I, I mean, you can look at any statistic, right, in impacting indigenous community. And sometimes I don't like to go that route because I don't think we need this sort of like scientific data 
to justify the fact that there is such a disproportionate violence occurring against Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you look at the statistics of the unsheltered here, uh, we represent the largest population um, and nationwide per capita, absolutely the same thing. And so it's imperative for us to step up to ensure that, you know, if we believe in, for Diné people, we believe in ke, which is our familial relationships or our clanship. And that's, that establishes mutual mutuality. It establishes our mutual aid, right? To support each other and find ways to not just look at, oh, somebody's just drinking, they have mental health issues. It's like, what's actually the root cause of that? Why are they on the street? Yeah. Why are they on the street? What has failed in our society? What has failed in our communities? You know, it's it's just like the way people try to dissect and make um, sexual violence in our communities a personal problem as opposed to looking at the social factors that contribute to the violences, interpersonal violences and sexual violences that we face in our communities. It's not an individual problem once it happens. It's actually a breakdown in our community, our cultures, our ways of being. And so the same thing with unsheltered relatives, you know, what, what is the central component of what is forcing, what's the root cause that's forcing our relatives out on the street and what can we do to intervene to help bring them back up, to welcome back them back into the circle, no matter what kind of harm they've caused, you know, experiences of severe loss, traumas from, you know, serving as pawns in the colonial occupying forces, imperialist wars elsewhere, invading and killing other indigenous peoples for resources, whether it's, um, you know, serving time in prison for doing, you know, doing something bad. I'm not going to glorify all, you know, and, and look at all folks on the street as people who haven't done something wrong, yeah. but why, you know, let's yeah. build those relationships and bring them back in the circle for healing. And that's, to me, the least we can do is make sure they don't freeze in the winter and make sure that they have food and access to the basic, you know, things and treat them as human beings because they reflect the dehumanization that we see and, and internalize ourselves. They should always be a reflection of that dehumanization from society as the quote unquote bad Indians, right? The Indian problem. Yeah. Um, and they should be a reflection of ourselves. And then that makes it establishes an opportunity for us to see how we can both heal together those relationships and that which is broken in our communities. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and the root causes are capitalism, <laughs> you know, the fact that people can't afford to live, you know, because people own the stars, they own the night because people own the land, it's private property. You can't be trespassing here and there. You know, my, my friend I've organized with, who's a relative on the street here. His name is Shane Russell. Uh, he asserted at a, a rally we did for unsheltered relatives here where the community themselves organized an intervention. He said, before 1492, no one was homeless on these lands. And you can't argue with that. Yeah. What can we restore? What ways can we reconnect to those practices, those understandings? And a lot of it is, you know, breaking down this, these social institutions, these social order um, and capitalism and the colonial logics are part of that where people are afraid to even just talk to their relatives and, you know, judge them and um, participate in the sort of lateral violence that continues to keep them stripped of their humanity. Yeah, the way that people look at the unhoused community is, is 
it's very unfortunate because like i said nobody even gets out there and like like tries to even make a connection and and it's in like in here in california it's not as bad people obviously aren't, aren't out there it's not as cold in the winter but it does get pretty rainy and and, and stuff and people people don't care you know um the in santa cruz they were they were bulldozing people's camps and this is where people were living and had things set up in their whole lives they had their whole lives there and people just would come and bulldoze it and and who knows what what sentimental things they had in their tents that they just got rid of that could have like been the one thing holding that person on to to life you know what i mean so people don't think about those things when they, they think about the unhoused i think because they're out there they don't have anything you know and it's, it's they do have certain things they have certain sentimental things that they hold on to in their little little, little areas that they they have built for themselves you know what i mean it's it's not just sentimental i mean these these kinds of sweeps are happening everywhere yeah. And a lot of it is because of the factor of capitalists wanting to continue to maintain their profits for their fucking boutique shops where they sell organic fair trade coffee or chocolates from indigenous people from elsewhere, but they don't give a shit about the people whose lands they're on yeah. and also maintain their property values. You know, gentrification is a extraordinary part of that but we can't talk about gentrification without talking about colonialism because they operate in the same logics yeah um and so you know this is part of the ongoing process of forced removal to invade people's camps where they are surviving you know it's not just about sentimentality and what people yeah. collect and have at their camps you know people conglomerate into camps uh, on the street, out of safety, out of survival. Mm-hmm. Um, like here in the city of Flagstaff, the so-called city of Flagstaff, there's an anti-camping ordinance and it uh, criminalizes people camping in public spaces or even in their cars. In the winter, that forces unsheltered people to go hide, right, in gutters, to go hide underneath a, um, you know, an awning or in the back by a dumpster and, and, mm-hmm. and sort of dissipate and atomize themselves when if they were able to camp together, they could look after each other, make sure each other has certain needs and warmth and share resources. And, and they become central spaces for people like us who do mutual aid and street patrol support to make sure that they have the necessary warm gear, warm packs uh, to survive, you know, because they can survive on their own terms. It's interesting because um, those interventions of the sweeps really is just profit motive and maintains, you know, this sort of like idea of um, capitalism is not failing. But this is the reality that, yeah. you know, we should not ignore this evidence and we should make sure that we are supporting each other so they don't continue to suffer in those conditions and defend these camps rapidly, um, just as we would defend defend a, a forest from being clear-cut uh, because our relatives should be precious <laughs> you know not discarded disposed buried yeah, hidden absolutely. underneath i mean the fact that even today people have to be forced in such an undignified manner to beg some kind of municipality to search through garbage for missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and trans and two-spirit relatives in so-called Canada. The fact that that's happening today, that people have to say, hey, we need time to, to dig through your garbage to look for our relatives who are missing. This kind of disposal attitude and dehumanization is directly connected to the desecration 
of our sacred places and the healing that needs to happen to end desecration to you know as as it's been said by many people violence against the lands is violence against our body and our uh, unsheltered relatives in, represent that the amount that we have to go through to get the people to just care about what we're having to like beg for like you're saying to beg people to to search landmines to search fucking landmines is, is wild yeah. landfills yeah is wild like they just throw case after case away you know what i mean like of of missing and murdered indigenous women trans and, and two-spirited people it's it's crazy um like the amount of, of missing and murdered people are just like just being thrown out i really appreciate you coming on because i honestly learned a lot today about a whole lot about your game about just decolonizing about certain certain issues going on in flagstaff arizona um i just learned so much today that i i like i, I you know i i wasn't able to come back with as much but like i definitely was like taking in everything you were saying because man though you dropped some knowledge on me today for sure and like i really appreciate you you coming on and telling your truth and and speaking about what you what you have going on in your life Thank you. We didn't even cover land back. I had some responses for you on that because I feel the same way about land back these days that I feel about Indigenous Peoples Day. A lot of people see it as a real estate maneuver to, you know, sort of negotiate management and administration of, you know, trust lands or, you know, whatever they can sort of real estate, you know, make real estate maneuvers. But to me, land back is an assertion. that It's not a demand. It's not something yeah. to be negotiated. And we need to consider um, that the land belongs to no one but itself. And this is part of the problem and why, you know, we have unsheltered relatives who are suffering. You know, the fact that indigenous people to this day represent the largest community of people who live without shelter on our own lands is one of the greatest affronts and examples of the injustice of the ongoing occupation of our land. So when we talk about burning wagons, when we talk about burning forts, you know, anti-colonial struggle, the fire that is within you uh, of indigenous resistance needs to be carried forward. You know, instead of begging politicians and signing petitions for reforms or voting, thinking that we can vote away uh, colonial violence, you know, we have to stop deluding ourselves and look at ways to take meaningful direct action and reassert assert our autonomy as indigenous people on our own terms, not just look at these old treaties that were negotiated with guns to our ancestors' heads and not just look at, you know, the, the, the economic arrangements through nonprofits that can be made while people are lining, these, these executive directors of nonprofits are lining their pockets. It's an anti-capitalist, anti-white uh, supremacist, anti-cis-heteropatriarchal and anti-colonial sort of um, intergenerational struggle that we need to embody as our mutuality to restore right relationships with Mother Earth and with each other. And when I say with each other, not just human beings, but non-human beings as well for total liberation. Absolutely. I agree. And I thank you so much for coming on. And man, you keep dropping gems. I don't want to stop. But we, we, what we can do is we can do another episode because we can reconnect and because like we definitely, I can I can listen to you all day talk and and continue all <laughs> oh, day. Oh yeah, thank you so much, and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And um, yeah, I'm honored to be invited here. And I'll yeah, say, definitely send you a copy of the Game Burn the Fort. But like, you know, as you can hear, I'm not interested in merchandising this. I'm interested in making sure that we propagandize 
right? Uh, the agitation that we need towards liberation. So that's what this project represents. I'm not going to market a product to somebody. I want to make sure that like the narratives are being challenged, undermined, and we stoke those fires that we need to keep burning those wagons. Fuck yeah. Thank you. Yahui, thank you. Yeah. Much, much appreciated. Yeah. I'm going to... If you'd like to give the board game a try, remember to go to burnthefort.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and if you have any questions or want to collaborate, our email is burnthewagon1492 at gmail.com. Burn the wagon. Burn the wagon. Burn the wagon.